God, as we come to you this morning, Lord, we confess just how unworthy we are of you. Lord, you are holy. There's none like you, and you and you alone are worthy of all praise and all glory. Lord, I pray as we Lord, look to your word now, we are needy. We are in desperate need of your help to guide, to illuminate, to fill us with spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Lord, be our teacher. Pray for open hearts this morning that you'd move in our midst. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've always been in awe of lighthouses. Lighthouses are these enormous, beautiful structures. There's a, an element of mystery uh, to lighthouses. I know my family and I, when we vacation to Hilton Head, South Carolina, uh, Ellie and, and Lila, you know that we try to get up to the top of that lighthouse and to see as far out as we possibly can. We really enjoy lighthouses. And as beautiful as they are, as enormous as they are, they do serve a purpose. Lighthouses are intended to warn ships of dangerous and shallow rocky waters and to guide those ships to safe harbors. So when the ships, when they see the light from the lighthouse, it's basically a big announcement. It's a, it's a warning. Say, hey, beware, you know, as rocky, shallow waters are, are over here. And, and so those ships can then navigate appropriately. Imagine without lighthouses, how much harm that would cause the ships out there in the waters. I was thinking a lot about lighthouses as I was looking at 1 Samuel 6 and studying this passage, because if our lives are like ships in the Christian life, then it's God's holiness that serves as the lighthouse. Now for us, as we kind of sail through life, it's sometimes through very dark waters. It's easy for us to lose our way. It's difficult to see the, the dangerous rocks of sin that at times can be all around us. And yet in God's kindness, he has provided a great light in his holiness that serves as a warning about the dangerous rocks of sin around us, but it also serves to guide us to safe harbors, to walk in godliness and holiness. So I think there's a challenge there. There's a challenge not just to see God's holiness, but to respond appropriately to God's holiness, to make sure that we're navigating our lives in light of the holiness of the Lord. When we come to 1 Samuel 6, uh, this is really a passage of what not to do. This is a, a warning of how not to respond to the holiness of God. We're going to see both examples from the Philistines and the Israelites uh, of kind of their response to the holiness and the glory of the Lord. So we're really going to make our way through this chapter verse by verse. I'll make some application points at the end related to the holiness of the Lord. So three main scenes in this passage. Here's scene number one. Uh, we notice that they come up with a plan to return the ark uh, back to the Israelites. Uh, last week we learned from chapter five that the, the uh, Philistines desperately wanted to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant uh, was causing devastation all throughout uh, the land of the Philist uh, Philistia. Uh, it was causing uh, tumors to break out among uh, the people there. Uh, it was causing great panic, great fear. We notice what the God of Israel did to their God, Dagon, and they are all done with the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, we learn in verse 1 that the Ark of the Covenant, this precious war trophy of the Philistines, only lasted seven months there. And verses 2 through 9 then tell us what they do, what their plan is to get rid of it. You can almost view chapter 5 and 6 this way. That chapter 5, it's the, the Philistines' attempt political solutions to the problem of the ark. 
Well, chapter 6, this is their religious solution in handling the ark, and they turn to their own priests. These are pagan priests, but notice what they recommend. They recommend returning the ark, but returning the ark not empty-handed. They say you need to include a guilt offering. That's kind of strange from pagan priests. It's also important for us to note that they acknowledge, at least in part, that they've offended the God of Israel, that they're, in a sense, in his debt, and they need to appease him. The problem, though, that they're experiencing is how in the world do you repay a debt you cannot assess to a God that you do not know? That's kind of what they're experiencing right now, and this is the best plan they come up with. They're like, well, I guess to appease the God of Israel, let's come up with this plan of five golden tumors and five golden mice. Maybe that will appease uh, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And for us, kind of on this side of the passage, there's a little bit of humor involved in this plan. You have to wonder what that process was like in creating these five golden tumors and five golden mice. They're thinking to themselves, well, we need to find the individual who has the best tumor in all of the land. Oh, it's Jeff. Yeah, Jeff's got that beautiful big tumor on his back. Let's bring him in here. Jeff, you just sit right here. Don't move. And we're just going to kind of sketch this right so we can have the best tumor for the God of Israel. Right? Like, How did they come up with this kind of plan? Right? This is the best that they can come up with. And yet, underneath this bizarre plan, uh, we learn a lot about the God of Israel. One of the things that we, that we need to understand is that the whole account of sending the ark out of their land, it really contains several allusions and echoes to the story of the exodus from Egypt. Try to point this out over the last couple of chapters, different allusions, different references to both Moses, to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians. Well, there are several in this chapter alone, and it has a point that I'll point out towards uh, the end here. I want you to notice all of these allusions to the story of the Exodus first. If you notice in verse 3 of our chapter, they use this phrase, which is one word in the Hebrew, send away. They want to send away the Ark of the Covenant. Well, that's the exact same word in the Hebrew that Pharaoh uses time and time again for the dismissal of the Israelites from Egypt. It's actually the same word that Moses uses when he says, uh, let my people go. Chapter 5, verse 1, it's the same word in the Hebrew. The point here is the ark's departure from the Philistine territory would be in some sense like the departure of Israel from Egypt. Okay, So you have the ark, represents Israel. You have the Philistines, representing Pharaoh. And you have these tumors from the last chapter, representing the ten plagues. And then secondly, uh, there's a reference to Israel uh, for them not to leave the Egypt, uh, Egypt empty-handed, According to Exodus chapter 3, verse 21, they were to take gold and silver from the Egyptians. We see that same theme here as these priests from the Philistines recommend not to send the ark empty-handed, but to include gold, uh, golden uh, tumors, and gold, uh, golden mice. And then thirdly, we notice the motif of bondage and liberation in both accounts. This is quite obvious here, that the Israelites were in bondage and slavery to the Egyptians, and they were liberated. They were set free. Well, in a similar way, the Ark of the Covenant uh, was taken into captivity into the house of Dagon with the Philistines. And now we're noticing the Ark of the Covenant because of the hand of the Lord sending it free. <clears throat> and then fourthly, uh, both situations, both accounts emphasize knowing God. 
this knowledge of God that serves as really the, the primary motivation for why these events actually occurred, why the Israelites were in bondage to the Egyptians. It was to know God. It's for the, the Egyptians to know God. Remember the five uh, references I made last week to, to God five different times in Exodus saying, I'm, I'm doing these mighty acts. I'm having these 10 plagues so that you may know that I am the true living God. There's such an emphasis there. We see that even in our passage in verse 9. They set this plan in motion so that, verse 9, that they may know that it's Yahweh who's behind all of these things. So knowledge of God is really at the center of these events. And another aspect uh, to their plan that really stuck out to me, in verses 5 and 6, these pagan priests recommend that they give glory to the God of Israel. It really stuck out to me. They're basically saying, hey, don't forget, as, as we kind of you know, set this plan in motion, don't forget to acknowledge that Yahweh is more superior to our own gods, that he's more powerful, that, that we need to give glory to him, give praise to his name. It's so interesting, and even more interesting is why they recommend this. They're saying do this so that the heavy hand of the Lord may be lifted off of you. We see, again, the wordplay in Hebrew, the, this very similar word, almost identical words of glory and heavy show up there in verses 5 and 6. So they're saying here, hey, acknowledge God's glory, acknowledge his weightiness, acknowledge the, the significance of Yahweh, so that his heavy hand of judgment may be lifted off of you. But then there's another reason why they are to glorify the God of Israel. Verse 6, so they may not harden their hearts, just like the Egyptians, just like Pharaoh did. So they make the allusion to the Exodus. Now, this is actually amazing insight by these pagan priests. They identify that a way to avoid hardening your hearts is by glorifying God. And that's exactly right, that the mechanism that we have in place to keep our hearts soft and open and receptive to the word of the Lord, to the convictional Holy Spirit, for us to see the danger of sin, is by praising God, acknowledging his glory, acknowledging the weightiness of the Lord, the heaviness of God and his glory is a way to keep our hearts soft and receptive and sensitive. So the opposite is also true. A defiance against God brings his heavy hand of judgment, as we've seen with the Egyptians in Exodus, and now the Philistines are experiencing that as well. So this is a little bit of their plan. You, you read verses 7 through 9, and there's another layer that's added in here that's quite interesting. Remember, they want to ensure that it's Yahweh who's behind all this. They want to know that this is the God of Israel. And so they stack the odds against God. Notice what they do here. They decide to yoke two cows together, who have never been yoked before, or they're going to be pulling this cart that has the Ark of the Covenant, has the golden mice and the golden tumors, the, uh, the offering there. And these cows, they've never pulled a cart before, right? There's, there's no GPS system. There, there's no signage. There's no one directing them. And even more so, they, they elected to, to select two cows who recently uh, gave birth, which means they're going to want to return back to their young and nurse them, right? They've got more milk than they know what to do with. And so for them to set off, 
They're going to basically make a U-turn and go back to their young and nurse them. The odds are stacked against God. But for them, they're saying, okay, if they travel the seven miles from Ekron all the way to the land of the Israelites, then we will know that this is truly God. Now, this situation sounds very familiar to another account in the Old Testament where the odds were stacked against God. First Kings chapter 18, you got the face-off between Yahweh and the false god uh, Baal. Right? You got the, the false prophet or the prophets of Baal versus the, uh, God's prophet Elijah at Mount Carmel. And it's Elijah who orders the sacrifice and the altar and the trench to be filled with water, just drenched with as much water as possible. Now, the, the, the competition was which God is going to send which altar on fire, right? And so Elijah basically drenches the whole thing with water, and, and it's Yahweh, it's the God of Israel who lights it on fire and proves that he is far more superior than Baal. Right? And Elijah gets a little bit testy, kind of talks trash a little bit and says, hey, did Baal fall asleep? Can he not hear you guys? Right? Kind of rubbing it in there. But that's the same point that's going on here in 1 Samuel 6, that the greater the difficulty, the greater the clarity and certainty that God is superior, that the God of Israel is the one true living God. He is the all-powerful one. Now, this takes us uh, into scene number two. We see the return of the ark in verses 10 through 18. We notice they start to put the plan in motion. They put the ark of the covenant on that cart with the golden tumors and mice being pulled by those two cows. And crazy enough, they travel the whole seven miles in a straight line all the way to the territory of Israel. It is quite remarkable here. Again, no signage, no GPS and they make it all the way there. And I love the small detail at the end of verse 12. I don't know if this stuck out to you, but the lords of the Philistines are covertly looking on, right, just to see if it's going to make it all the way there. And sure enough, the, the cows are directed by the hand of the Lord as the road from Ekron all the way to Beth Shemesh becomes this highway for the Lord Almighty. You get this picture yet again of the Exodus, Right? And instead of the, uh, the Israelites coming out of Egypt, you've got the Ark of the Covenant coming out of the land of the Philistines. Well, notice now the, the vantage point now shifts off of the Philistines uh, to now that of the, the Israelite workers in the field there in Beth Shemesh. Now remember, it's been a long seven months without the Ark of the Covenant. A long seven months since that great defeat at Aphek, seven months since the priests were killed, both Eli and then Eli's two wicked sons, seven months without the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we have the advantage of reading the rest of the story, but they did not. And you wonder for the Israelites, the Ark of the Covenant representing this covenant that God has made with them, if they wondered, has God forgotten about us? Is God done with us? Or you wonder if they've lost all hope over those seven months, and then this day comes, a day that they would never forget. They probably heard the cows long before they figured out what those, those cows were carrying with them. But verse 13, once they figured out that they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, they greatly rejoice, filled with joy. The Ark of the Covenant has returned. You have to wonder if they thought this was the reversal of Ichabod. Remember Ichabod, the son of Phineas at the end of chapter 4? His new son and Phineas' wife names him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed, the glory has left. 
You wonder for them if they're, if they're experiencing kind of the, the reversal of that. The glory has now returned. We're told in verse 14, the ark came into this field. It was owned by a man named Joshua, and there was a great stone there. And we don't know much about Joshua, but this is likely an allusion to the most well-known Joshua in all of Israel's history. This is the Joshua that was named, uh, a book of the Bible is named after Joshua. Joshua was the great leader after Moses who led God's people into the promised land. This is a great warrior leader, and he's actually the one responsible for bringing the tabernacle, including the ark, into this land. So now we see the Lord drawing and leading the ark back into the land owned by a man named Joshua. Well, the people there, notice, they then chop up wood from the cart They took those two cows and they make a burnt offering to the Lord. They are acknowledging both thanks, but they're also acknowledging, at least in part, Israel's guilt before the Lord over the last several months. And then notice verse 15, it's the Levites who take down the ark, and that's appropriate. They were the ones responsible for handling the ark. They take it and they put it on that great stone. You get to the end of this and it seems, it just seems like all is well. You know, up until this point, the ark has returned, the people respond, at least on the surface, well. They, they respond rejoicing, they have reverence, and they make sacrifices there, a clear acknowledgement of the importance of this day. We would maybe expect the next verse to read, and they live happily ever after with the Lord. And yet, scene three, this is not a happy scene at all. We see the danger of God's holiness God's judgment being executed upon his people. Read verse 19, and this hits you like a ton of bricks. If you're reading this for the very first time, this story, you almost want to gasp or audibly say, what? God struck down 70 men right there and then? Like, what happened here? I thought this was supposed to be like a a happy little reunion. The, The gang is back together again. God and God's people and the Ark of the Covenant. Where's the happy ending? Did God get up on the wrong side of the bed? Is he having a bad day here? Why strike down 70 men dead right here and then? Well, the three reasons why, and it really revolves around the Levites. The Levites there committed several crucial errors in in relationship to the ark. In fact, just as a side note, in the book of Judges and 1 and 2 Samuel, whenever the Levites are mentioned, it's almost always referencing their wickedness or their incompetence. And this is definitely no different. Notice a couple of errors here. First, they offer this burnt offering as thanks for the return of the ark, which was appropriate. But according to Leviticus 13, all burnt offerings were to be male. They are offering cows, the female, instead of the bull. So that's error number one. Not only that, another error that they make, another mistake, is the actual treatment of the ark. According to verse 15, The Levites, again, they're the ones who take down the ark. They set it on the stone. And then verse 19 talks about them looking onto the ark, or some translations, looking into uh, the ark. Everything about this was wrong. According to Numbers chapter 4, which outlines the correct way to relate with the ark, number one, it needed to be covered. It's not covered. Okay, it's an issue. Number two, they were not to touch the ark, clearly touching the ark here. And number three, They're looking onto the ark in an inappropriate way. Now, there's not a lot here about what 
an inappropriate way is, is that you can't look at it for five seconds, no eye contact, and look away. I, we don't know exactly what's going on here. We just know that they looked on it or in it in a sinful way. But the overall point here is you act like a Philistine, you can expect to be treated like a Philistine. The Lord fights Philistines whether they are in Ashdod or Beth Shemesh. And what's even more striking, though, is that instead of repenting here, which normally you would think, oh, we did something wrong. Seventy men just died because God just did that. What did we do wrong? Like, let's evaluate. Where did we sin? Let's confess that. Let's throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. Doesn't happen at all here. Verse 21, they try to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant. We got to send this thing off to the next town, this Kirith Jerem town. They just want to pass it off. Chapter 7, verse 2, it tells us that the Ark remained there for 20 years. Basically, the Ark of the Covenant goes off scene, no longer the center point of God's people and the worship of God's people. And really, it'll take King David. 2 Samuel chapter 6, who will bring it from here, the Ark of the Covenant, all the way back to Jerusalem. So what do we do with a chapter like this? This is kind of a bizarre episode in 1 Samuel. What do we make of this? I think one of the first things that stands out to me, I think this chapter is meant to sober us. I think it's meant to help us to see the danger of God's holiness. The Ark of the Lord was dangerous both for the Philistines but also for the Israelites. And there is an appropriate response to the holiness of God. You see, the Philistines and the Israelites fail to respond well. And so that's kind of how I want to frame our application points here this morning, is if God's holiness is the lighthouse, and it's warning us and it's guiding us, how ought we to respond to him and his holiness? Well, three points here. Let me point out each of these. The first one is that the heaviness of God's holiness demands not to take him lightly. Right? Clearly, holiness is a, is a theme in this chapter, and I've waited up until this point to point out the fact that there are two main questions in this chapter that are serving really to bookend this whole story. And these are two questions that are virtually the same question that are both geared towards the heaviness of God's holiness. Uh, the first question is by the Philistines, second question is by the Israelites. Verse 2, first question by the Philistines, they ask, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Interesting question by a bunch of pagans. Uh, this is code for, we cannot handle the holiness and the heaviness of God. What are we going to do with this? How do we respond? How do we relate with the God of Israel, his power, his holiness, his glory is too much for us. What do we do with it? How do we basically get rid of it? And then you look at the end of the chapter, you see the second question in verse 20. This is after those 70 uh, men who take God too lightly, too casually, too flippantly. They are struck dead. Verse 20, they ask the question, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Essentially the same question, right? God is so holy. He's so glorious. Who can stand? Who can relate with him? Basically, what do we do with this awesome God? These questions are, are so important because what, what they're serving as, this whole chapter, it's like screaming at us like a lighthouse, saying, 
warning, 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 danger, 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 that if you take God lightly, flippantly, too casually, there is a danger that comes with God's holiness, that we cannot dismiss the glory and the holiness of God. We cannot treat him the same way that we treat one another or we treat other things in our lives. That how we interact with God must be categorically different than how we interact and relate with anything else or anyone else. There is an incredible weight to God's glory and to the holiness of God that demands we take him seriously with awe and with reverence. And we see this theme of holiness just keep coming up all throughout 1 Samuel. If you remember Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, do you remember how she began the prayer? She said, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. Right? This theme keeps popping up, and it, it begs the question, what does it mean that God is holy? Like, What is the holiness of God? Why is verse 20, why is that question asked in relationship to the holiness of the Lord? Well, without a doubt, there, there's no question that holiness is a central theme throughout the Bible. The word holy shows up over 600 times, in fact, 700 times, if you include the derivatives of holiness or sanctify or sanctification. It's all over the place. You, you really can't even understand the story of the Bible without understanding the holiness of God, that God is holy and he is intent on making his people holy to live in holy heaven forever and ever. It's basically the story of the Bible. But the primary idea of holiness is actually not moral purity. It's not being pristine ethically. We, we tend to think that way, and of course it includes that. But the primary idea of holiness is actually this idea of apartness, being set apart, that God is separated. God is different than all of creation, both in his essential nature and in the perfection of his attributes. Okay, so he's not just the, the source and the standard of moral goodness. He is moral goodness. And look, this is an attribute that we are incapable of wrapping our minds around. We should try, because it leads to worship, but God's being holy, God being completely and categorically different than anything else, we can't even, we can't understand all of that. Let me give us a, another A.W. Quote, uh, Tozer quote, week two in a row. He says, we cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we're capable of. He says, God's holiness is not simply the best we know, just infinitely bettered. He says, we know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. Holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. Right? We, can almost, we can barely grasp what this is even talking about, thinking about the holiness of God and how completely set apart he truly is. Another thing, just to point about the holiness of God, there's only one attribute of God, one characteristic in all of the Bible 
that's stated three consecutive times in succession. It's not God is love, love, love. It's not God is gracious, gracious, gracious. It's God is holy, holy, holy. He's not a little bit holy. He's not holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. See that in Isaiah 6. It begs the question, why is this attribute elevated at what seems to be in comparison to the rest? Well, I think it's important to understand God's holiness is not just one attribute among many. I think God's holiness is the one attribute that almost serves as a lens by which we see and understand all of the other attributes and characteristics. In other words, when you take another attribute, another characteristic of God, like God's omnipotence, he's all-powerful, doesn't mean much unless we know God's going to use that power for holy purposes and for with a holy plan. Or God's omniscience, he's all-knowing, it doesn't mean much unless we know that God is going to use that knowledge for holy purposes, that God is categorically different than anything else, anyone else in all of the world. So it does beg the question, how do we respond to it? What's the correct response as we think about God's holiness or as the Philistines basically ask, what do we do with this holy God? Well, the author of Hebrews counsels us this way. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, worship with reverence and awe. That's interesting to me. As we're thinking about the holiness of God, how to respond, we should worship him and our worship should be characterized with this reverence, this awe, this healthy fear of the Lord. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. Wow. Yeah, this is New Testament stuff. This is an Old Testament, not to pit the Old Testament God versus the New Testament, it's the same God, but sometimes I hear that. I don't like the Old Testament God. He's mean. You know, he strikes people dead on a whim, right? Look, this Hebrews 12, 20, this is New Testament. This is after Jesus has come. It's the same God that our response to the holiness of God is to worship him with awe and reverence, not to take him lightly, not to take him flippantly or be casual or indifferent or apathetic. It's to have this reverent fear because he's categorically different than anything else, anyone else. He is set apart from all of his creation. And this is, I'm connecting this to last week's message. As we, we looked at last week, the need to having this healthy fear of the Lord in order to know God rightly. Like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Well, how do we instill that healthy fear? It's seeing the holiness of God. Right, if you go to Isaiah 6, right, you see the, uh, the, the holiness of God in succession there. Isaiah 6, Isaiah gets this vision of the Lord, right, this magnificent scene of God on his throne. And it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. Right, Isaiah is getting a glimpse of the holiness of God. Next verse says, the foundations of the thresholds begin to shake. And so he gets this picture of God's holiness, but then we also get a picture of his response to the holiness of God. In verse 5, his response is not, oh, wow, that's cool. 
like, oh, awesome picture, I'm going to go away now and continue to live how I've always lived, or wow, that's awesome, I'm going to go do... No, his response is he says, woe is me. He says, woe is me, I am unclean, I am undone, I am a sinner. And, and he throws himself on the ground in worship of God, and at the end of that verse, he says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You notice that Isaiah gets a glimpse of God's holiness. He's instilled with this, this healthy fear of the Lord that results in him truly knowing and seeing God. See, that's the, that's the, the, the practical purpose of the holiness of God is it fills our hearts with this healthy reverence and awe of God that there's none like him, and that is the beginning of truly knowing God. As Jonathan Edwards noted, he says, it's the absence of godly fear that signifies a lack of knowledge of God. So just practically here, what's a way to maybe apply this? I would just encourage you, before you pray, before you sing, before you read scripture, before you talk about the Lord with other people, just to pause and remind yourself of who it is that you're about to talk to. Just take five seconds, 10 seconds, two minutes, however much time to remind yourself of who you're about to interact with, that this is a holy God. There's none like him and allow that time of preparation to then inform how you talk, how you relate, how you worship him. And the beautiful reality of God's holiness is once you get a glimpse of it, it kills apathy. It cannot be casual with a holy God. So that's one response. Don't take him lightly. Secondly, though, the heaviness of God's holiness demands that we pursue holiness. We pursue holiness. I noted the two important questions that bookend for Samuel 6. They're both geared towards what do we do with the holiness, the heaviness of God? And yes, one response is not to take him lightly or casually, absolutely. But there's another response that we see throughout Scripture. And this, this response is from Psalm chapter 24, which is actually written by King David himself. Again, King David, the one responsible taking the ark from this location all the way to Jerusalem 20 years later. He asked basically the same question as verses 2 and verses 20. He says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place, right? Same question. Here's his response. Here's his solution, his answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. What's that code for? That's code for who can stand in his holy place. The response, be godly, be holy, have hands that are clean, have a heart that is pure, avoid idolatry, avoid speaking with deceit. This is what God desires of his people for us to be godly, for us not to walk in darkness, not to walk in sin. And you see this theme all throughout the Bible. Surely in the Old Testament, Leviticus, be holy for I am holy, but also the New Testament. First Peter 2, it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So look, are you walking in the light this morning? Are you walking in darkness? 
There are elements of your life where you've got sin and you're not dealing with it. Look, the correct response to the holiness of God is by taking sin seriously, putting it to death. Stop messing around with it and confess it and repent of it. It's one of the effects of the holiness of God. The closer you get to the Lord, the more aware you become of your sin. It's not that you're sinning more. It's that the closer you get to that lighthouse, the more light there is for you to see that the sin that has existed in your life, that, but that you've been blinded to. This demands take sin seriously. Also, just want to take this moment just to maybe address something related to the holiness of God that, that has been, I think, it's a concern of mine that's been growing over the last several years as I'm in conversations and just seeing kind of the landscape, even of Christianity, that I think is a danger to the health of our, of our relationship with the Lord, living out our faith, and it's centered on this idea of being authentic and being transparent that seems to be elevated over pursuing godliness and holiness. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but it almost feels like the new goal and the new target of Christianity is to be real, to be raw, to be messy, to be transparent, and to be authentic. And when you share your messiness, you're done. That's it. That, that's maturity. Like, that's the goal of Christianity. As long as I can share my real self, as long as I can be authentic, be true to myself, that's all I need to do. And it's not taking the additional step of then repenting of that sin. I see a danger in that of elevating authenticity for authenticity's sake instead of for the sake of godliness and holiness. Brett McCracken asks a very profound question. He says, evangelicalism, both on the individual and institutional level, is trying hard to purge itself of a polished veneer that smacked of hypocrisy. But by focusing on brokenness as proof of our realness and authenticity, have evangelicals turned being screwed up into a badge of honor? its own sort of works righteousness? Has authenticity become a higher calling than, say, holiness? In many ways, I think it has. I think the, the clear commands in Scripture to confess sin, repent of sin, walk in the light, pursue a godly life, all of those elements of being a healthy, growing Christian has become so minimized and almost downplayed as if that's old school, that's archaic, that's legalistic. And now we see the elevation of this language of being raw and real and transparent and messy and authentic. And it almost feels like it's being elevated over just kind of the old school, be as godly as possible, pursue being as holy as possible through the power of the gospel. And at the same time, yes, you do need to be transparent, need to be authentic and be honest. That, that helps as you're living out your faith, especially in community with other believers, absolutely. But here's the beautiful good news. You don't have to pick one. It's not either be authentic or be godly. Be both. Don't be authentic for authenticity's sake. Be authentic, but continue to take that next step of confessing the sin turning from it, and pursuing the Lord Jesus with all that you are. And look, 
That's not being hypocritical. That's being a follower of Jesus. A quote I came across was so helpful, this idea. It says, there's this idea that to live out of conformity with how I feel is hypocrisy. But that's a wrong definition of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is living out of conformity to what I believe. So to live in conformity with what I believe in spite of what I feel isn't hypocrisy, that's integrity, right? And I've heard that many times. I probably have said it my own self, where I don't want to do that because I don't feel like doing it. If I do it and I, and I don't feel like doing it, I'm being a hypocrite, not being true to myself, right? But that's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not doing something that you believe to be true, that walking in integrity is doing what you believe to be true despite what you feel. And the beautiful thing, you don't have to pick one between being transparent and being godly. We do both. All right, and finally here, the last application point is that the heaviness of God's holiness is answered in Jesus Christ. I want to be clear that holiness is not about a self-help message in becoming the better you. That's not what holiness is. It's not relying on your own strength, digging down deep enough for self-improvement. No, holiness on the ground is basically about creating space in your heart, removing the clutter of sin via repentance, so you have more room and space in your heart to enjoy and worship Jesus. That's essentially what growing in godliness actually is, and this is why Jesus is the solution and the answer to God's holiness, because let me remind you of the profound question that was raised in verse 20. This question in verse 20 is essentially when the weight of God's glory and holiness presses down upon you, who can stand? Who can stand? Dagon couldn't, and he needed to be propped up. The Philistines couldn't. They're inflicted with tumors. They're trying to get the ark out of there. The 70 men who died at Joshua's field couldn't. The people at Beth Shemesh couldn't. They're sending the ark to a different town. Who can stand before a holy God? Answer, no one. No one can stand before a holy God. If you think that your good works will outweigh your bad works and that you can stand in the presence of a holy God and be accepted, you are terribly mistaken. Terribly mistaken. The only people that can stand before a holy God are those who are hidden in Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 talks about this idea of being hidden and clothed in Jesus, which is such an important aspect of what it means to be saved, that as Jesus got up on a cross and he died for our sins, he paid our penalty, he removed the penalty of our sin. But in order to be accepted before God, you still need perfection. You still need righteousness. That's God's standard. And so who will God accept? Who is perfect? Who is righteous? Not you and not me. Only Jesus is. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. And so if you put your faith in Jesus, that unites you in Christ. You are now one with Jesus, which means when you stand before a holy God, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you in your sin. No, your sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. Now, when he sees you, 
he sees his own son. He sees Jesus and Jesus' righteousness, his perfection, and his holiness, and he accepts you and he loves you, and nothing will ever change that. That's why Christianity is all about faith in Jesus. And the more that you are enjoying Jesus, the more that becomes a fuel propelling you towards living a life of godliness. So who can stand before a holy God? It's only by hiding yourself in Jesus. Everyone else will receive judgment, condemnation, wrath, and they will experience the full extent of the danger of God's holiness. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus, for sending him to die in our place. We thank you that as we think about standing before you, a holy God, Lord, they, there are parts of us that tremble. Lord, in you, there is no darkness at all. There is no sin. And we can only come before you because of Jesus. That in Jesus, we can not only draw near to you, but we can draw near with confidence because we are one in Christ. We are hidden in him. So Jesus, we thank you for your great sacrifice on the cross. We thank you that you made a way for us to be saved. And Lord, I pray for us as we consider a response to your holiness that we might walk in holiness and godliness. Lord, give us a, a tenacity to be as godly as possible. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.